there in Isaiah chapter 25. And if you remember from last week, uh, we, we kind of begun, we began a new section in the book of Isaiah uh, as we've been studying, taking one week at a time, studying uh, every chapter in the book of Isaiah. And last week we started a section in the book of Isaiah that's commonly referred to as Little Apocalypse, and it, it deals with a lot of end times thing. And the entire book of Isaiah deals with a lot of end times prophecy, but uh, in these chapters it's condensed a lot of information. And if you remember in chapter 24, it had to do with God pouring out His wrath upon the world and upon the unbelievers. And it was a lot of negative things about how God would shake the earth and all the different things that He would do and how no matter what, uh, you know, no matter what anybody thinks and no matter what anybody says, at the end of the day, they, everyone will bow their knee to Jesus Christ and they shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In chapter 24, we kind of dealt with the, the negative side of the unbelievers, how the unbelievers will be dealt with during the time of uh, the wrath, the pouring out of, of, of God's wrath. In chapter 25, we get a view of the believers and a view of what's going to be happening and what will be uh, uh, going through the end times for for those of us that are saved, for those of us that have accepted Christ as our Savior. And, and it talks a lot about, uh, about a lot of joyful things. If you notice verse 1 of chapter 25, the Bible says, O Lord... And I want you to notice this phrase, thou art my God. That phrase, thou art my God, uh, is not uh, found in, in, in is, that, that phrase is not very common in Scripture. We're going to look at it a little closer, but notice the verse continues. It says, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. And then I want you to notice this phrase. If you're taking notes, if you like to take notes, I would underline that phrase, thou art my God. And then under, underline the last phrase in verse 1 of chapter 25, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And that those that phrase there, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. I want you to notice something uh, that the Bible kind of teaches in regards to that. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 25, but go with me just real quickly to the book of Revelation. Last book in the New Testament, of course, the book of Revelation deals with end times prophecy. And I want you to go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, and look at verse number 5. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5. Now keep your finger there in Isaiah 25 and verse 1 because we're going to come right back to it. But notice the last phrase of Isaiah 25, 1 says, Thy counsels of old are, make note of these words, faithfulness and truth. Now the word counsel means advice or it means to, to give some advice. It, it talks about communicating a truth. And it says, thy counsels, referring about the counsels of God, are faithfulness and truth. In Revelation chapter 21, if you look at verse number 5, notice what the Bible says. Revelation 21 and verse 5, the Bible says, He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, now notice what he says, Write. He's talking to John about writing scripture, writing the Bible. He says, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Do you see that? These words are true and faithful. So Isaiah 25, 1 tells us that the counsels of God of old are faithfulness and true. Revelation 21, 5 tells us that the words of God are true and faithful. Notice I uses the same words to describe it. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Look at verse number 6. Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 6. 
Revelation 22 and verse number 6, the Bible says this, And he said unto me, Revelation 22 and verse 6, And he said unto me, notice this, These sayings, talking about the, the sayings of the words of God, These sayings, notice, are faithful and true. And the Lord God of, of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. So Isaiah tells us, Thy counsels are of, uh, of old are faithfulness and true. Revelation 21.5 tells us that these words are true and faithful. Revelation 22.6 says these, these sayings are faithful and true. So it's, it's, it's pretty uh, consistent that the counsels, the words, the sayings, the, the word of God is considered to be faithful or faithfulness and it's considered to be truth or true is what the Bible tells us. But notice these sayings are also not just said of the counsels and the words and the word of God, but it's said about an individual. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse number 11. Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 11. And we don't have time to read the entire passage. You can read it on your own and get the context. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, the Bible says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he, now that he there is referring to Jesus. You can study that in the context, read it later, and you'll know that the he coming is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he that sat upon him, notice, was called faithful and true. Do you see that? And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. So Isaiah says, your counsels are faithfulness and true. Revelation 21.5 says, these words are true and faithful. Revelation 22.6 says, these sayings are faithful and true. But then Revelation 19 tells us that he who sat on the white horse, that he was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth uh, make war. Uh, go, go to 1 John chapter number 1. 1 John chapter number 1. You say, why is Jesus referred to as faithfulness and true, and his word and the sayings and the counsel are referred to as faithfulness and, and truth? Re, uh, John chapter number 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter number 1. And look at verse number 1. John chapter number 1 and verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. In the beginning was the Word. Do you see that? Now, the Word there is referring to the Word of God. But I want you to notice how it has a capital W there. That's because it's, it's a name. It's referring to an individual. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word, notice, was with God. So, the Word in this phrase is separate to God. Okay, and the God there is referring to God the Father. So you have the Word was with God, meaning alongside of God, but then notice this, and the Word was God. Do you see that? So we have the Word with God, and, we, and then the Bible tells us the Word was God. The subject is the Word. Look at verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. Who was in the beginning with God? The Word was. Look at verse 3. All things were made by Him, and without Him... The hymn there is referring to the word. All things were made by who? The word. And without him, the word, was not anything made that was made. So according to this passage, the word is the creator that made all things. And the word was with God and the word was God. Now who is the word? Skip down to verse 14. And the Bible tells us, and the word was made flesh. Do you see that? And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, that's Jesus Christ, 
full of grace and truth. And here's what you got to understand. And some of you may not understand this, and that's okay. I'm not, I'm not telling you I understand this 100%. But the Bible teaches that the Word of God, the counsels, the words, the saying, the actual Word of God. Uh, when, when, when I'm talking about the Word of God, I'm not talking about the, this book. I'm not talking about the, the pages or the ink. I'm not talking about the leather or the binding. But I'm talking about the words, the actual words that make the Word of God. The Bible teaches us that these words actually became flesh. And they dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So when the Bible is referred to as faithfulness and truth, when the counsels, which are the words of God, are referred to as faithfulness and truth, and the words are referred to as true and faithful, and the sayings are referred to as faithful and true, then it makes sense that He who rideth on the white horse would be called faithful and true. Because He who rides on the white horse is just the incarnate manifestation of the word and you got to understand that and i know that doesn't we accept that by faith that doesn't make sense in our human minds but go back to revelation 19 notice uh notice verse number 12 well let's read verse 11 go back to revelation 19 look at verse number 11 revelation 19 and verse number 11 revelation 19 and verse number 11 Revelation 19 and verse 11 says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Look at verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Do you see that? Jesus, you got to understand this. Jesus is the Word. The Word was made flesh. And here's what you got to understand. And sometimes people get upset with us and say, well, I don't understand why you guys make such a big deal about this King James issue. And why does the King James Bible, you know, and by the way, if you don't know this at Verity Baptist Church, we believe the King James Bible is the preserved Word of God. We believe it is perfect. We believe it was without error. We believe it is exactly what God, uh, you know, wanted us to have in the English language. And, and, and we believe that. And there are other translations that are perverted and corrupt. And if you've never heard that before, we can prove it to you, show it to you. We have a film on it. You can watch New World Order Bible versions. It goes through and thoroughly explains it. But here's what you got to understand. Why is the issue of the Bible so important? Why do we have to have a perfect translation of the Bible? Here's why. Because if you need a perfect Jesus, do you understand that? If Jesus, this morning we talked about, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That's what qualified him to be able to die for. Jesus was without corruption. Jesus was without error. Jesus was without sin. There was nothing defiled about Jesus. And if Jesus, the Word, is perfect, the flesh is perfect, then Jesus, the Word, the actual words, the sayings, the counsels, have to be as perfect as Jesus was. Because they're the same thing. You say, I don't understand how the words would become flesh. I don't get that either. I don't understand how the word was with God and the word was God. That doesn't make any sense to me in my head. I just accept it by faith. First John says, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. I that doesn't make sense to me either. But I accept it by faith. Now here's what's interesting. We just celebrated Christmas not too long ago. You can go back to Isaiah. We just celebrated Christmas not too long ago. 
And oftentimes during the Christmas time, I think to myself, it would have been nice because you say, well, what's Christmas about? Christmas is about celebrating the word becoming flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father. And you and I missed that. We didn't get to be there like the shepherds and, and the wise men to be able to see the word become flesh. But do you know this, that there is a joy of the coming future for believers, for those of us that are saved, for those of us one day, there is a joy that even though we didn't get to see in the first advent at the first time the word become flesh, we will one day see the word in the flesh come down on a white horse. There's a joy of the coming word in the flesh. And here Isaiah is talking about that. He says, hey, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. So we see a joy of the coming Savior, a joy of the coming Christ. He's the coming word in the flesh. Just like the word became flesh the first time, the word in the flesh. His name is the Word of God is coming in the flesh. But I want you to notice, look at verse 1 again, Isaiah 25 and verse 1. Not, not only is that phrase there, counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, but then you also have this phrase, thou art my God. Now, we're, we're, we're kind of going to go in a circle, so I want you to just pay attention for a second and just kind of see if you can follow what, what I'm saying, because it's really interesting as you study the Bible. Sometimes you feel like you're going in circles, but it kind of all comes back together. And it's interesting if you notice, if you notice this, uh, if you can follow what I'm about to show you, I think it'll prove to you that a man did not write the Bible. A man could not write the Bible. It's just too deep. But, but I want you to notice this phrase. Isaiah 25, 1. Thou art my God. You see that? Thou art my God. Now that phrase is not found a lot through Scripture. Let me show you one of the times you see it. Go to Hosea chapter number 2. Hosea chapter number 2, just flip a few pages over from Isaiah uh, and Hosea chapter number 2 and look at verse number 23. Hosea chapter number 2 and look at verse number 23 and I want you to notice this. Hosea chapter number 2 and verse number 23. Hosea 2.23, the Bible says this, And I will sow her unto me in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them, notice this phrase, which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. Do you see that? So Hosea 23 says that there's coming a day when there's a people who were not my people, and they're going to be able to become my people, or they will be finally, you know, in, in present tense, be there as I, I will be their God. And he says that this is what they're going to say. Thou art my God. So Isaiah 25.1 says, thou art my God. That leads us to Hosea 2.23, where it says, thou art my God. But in Hosea 2.23, we find this, this phrase. Were not my people, thou art my people. Do you see that? He says, I will say to them, which were not my people, thou art my people. Now, in Hosea 23, that phrase leads us to another New Testament passage that is uh, kind of interesting. Go, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at a lot of references, and I, I may lose you, and I hope I don't. Just try to follow along with what I'm saying, because, I, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's interesting to you, but it's interesting to me when I was studying. And uh, in Isaiah 25.1, you have this phrase, Thou art my God. That phrase is found in Hosea 2.23, which... Hosea 2.23 is one of, one of two places where you find this phrase, Thou art my God. In Hosea 2.23, we find this phrase or this saying, I will say to them, which were not my people, thou art my people. Well, that phrase is quoted in 1 Peter chapter number 2. 
First Peter chapter number two, and uh, let's just begin reading at verse number seven. First Peter chapter number two and verse number seven. First Peter two seven says, "Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious; but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar." people that you should show forth the praise of him that has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light look at verse 10 which in time past were not a people but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy do you see that now here's what I want you to see Isaiah 25 1 says thou art my God that takes us to Hosea 2 23 where he says thou art my God but he also says this to them which were not my people thou shalt uh, thou art my people is what they will say that takes us to 1 Peter 2, 7, where he says, he repeats that phrase, we are not a people, but are now the people of God. But in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, he made this statement, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is the head of the corner. Now that's a quote from Psalm. So let's go back to Psalm, uh, Psalm 118. Psalm 118. If you go back to the Old Testament, open right in the center of the Bible, you'll more than likely find the book of Psalms. Unless you have a bunch of study notes in the back of your Bible, then it's going to throw you off. But maybe you should just get rid of the study notes and then you can uh, just open right to the center and you'll be fine. Psalm 118. I'm just joking. Some of you guys told me that you had study notes in the back and it messed up your thing. So you have to uh, recompense for that. Psalm 118. Look at verse number 22. Psalm 118. So in 1 Peter 2.7, we saw this phrase, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Psalm 118, look at verse 22. Psalm 118 and verse 22, the Bible says, the stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. Do you notice how that's a quote? It's quoted in 1 Peter. But I want you to notice what goes on in this passage. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which hath showed us light by Bind, uh, bind the sacrifices with cords even unto the, uh, the horns of the altar. Notice verse 28, thou art my God. Do you see that? That's the other time that phrase is used in scripture. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. That's, that's quoted in Isaiah. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good for his mercy endureth forever. Here's what's, what's interesting. I don't know if it's interesting to you, but it's interesting to me. Isaiah 25.1 says, thou art my God. Only two other references in the Bible use that phrase, thou art my God. Hosea 2.23 and Psalm 118 and verse 28 both say, thou art my God. Now, if you sit there and wonder, well, what do these verses all have connected? If you begin to follow the quotes, Hosea 2.23 says, which were not a people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God, which is quoted in 1 Peter. It says, We're not a people, but now are the people of God. In 1 Peter, he talks about the stone which the builders was disallowed. The same is the made, of, uh, made the head of the corner, which is a quote from Psalm 118, where he says, The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. And then in that same passage, he uses the phrase and brings us all the way back around to the same idea of Isaiah, Thou art my God. And God connects all those passages over hundreds of years over different writers, he connects them all together through quotes. And that's why I'm telling you, a man could not write this book. 
A man could not say, okay, I'm, I'm going to say, thou art my God here, Isaiah, I'm going to say, and then I'm going to have Peter use the same for, uh, terminology that Hosea used, that the psalmist used, and I'm bringing it all together, and here's the point. There's coming a day when people that were not a people, people that did not deserve to be united, people that did not deserve to be forgiven, people like you and I that give into temptation every day, there's coming a day when a people that were not a people will be united as a people and will be able to look up at God and say, Thou art my God, and He will say that we are His people. And that is a joy of the coming of Christ. The coming of uh, 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 of Christ brings with it the joy not only of the fact that we will see the coming of the Word in the flesh, but we will also dwell in communion with God as He's our God now, but at that time we will actually be physically united with Him and we'll be able to look up to God and say, Thou art my God. And He'll look down at us and say, You were a people which were not my people, but Thou art my people. And we will say to him, Thou art my God. Go back to Isaiah 25. Not only do you find in this passage a joy of the coming word in the flesh, not only do you find in this passage the joy of the community of the underserving believers in Christ, you also find in this passage a celebrating of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look at verse number 6. Isaiah 25 and look at verse number 6. Isaiah 25 and verse 6. Notice this phrase, or this verse. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast, of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, a fat, of, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. Notice he says that the Lord of hosts shall make unto, notice the, phrase, the, the word, all people, people that were not a people, will be united, and they will be able to, God will say, you're my people, and we'll say, thou art my God. He's going to unite all those people onto a feast. Go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Look at verse number 7. Revelation 19 and verse 7. What is this feast? Well, the Bible says that at the end times, after the rapture and all those things, God is going to basically throw a party. He's going to throw a celebration. He's going to throw a big feast for us. And in Revelation 19, we're told in verse 7, Revelation 19 and verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife had made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb is that celebration that we're referring to. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So here's what we have to look forward to. The Word in the flesh coming down. Here's what we have to look forward to. A community of people, of believers coming together, which were not a people. We were scattered, but now we are the people of God. We'll be able to say to God, you know, thou art my God, and he'll say, thou art my people. And we'll be able to look forward to the celebration of the, of the, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's interesting, because it's generally believed that the marriage supper of the Lamb will be held in heaven. But Isaiah 25, 6 makes it sound like it may be something that takes place on earth. And this is because uh, it says, in, in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all the people a feast. Let me show you one more thing that's a joy. Uh, go back to Isaiah 25. Look at verse 8. Isaiah 25 and verse number 8. Isaiah 25, 8, we find another quote that's used in the New Testament. Isaiah 25 
and verse number 8, the Bible says this, Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death in victory. Do you see that? He will swallow up death in victory. Now that phrase is quoted by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians gives us insight into what he's talking about. So make note of that phrase, Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death in victory. Underline it if you like to underline things in the Bible. And go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. What does that phrase teach us? What is, what, what, what is going on when that is fulfilled? He will swallow up death in victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at verse number 52. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is known as the resurrection chapter. It deals uh, with everything about the resurrection. It explains the resurrection. And, and we end the chapter talking about uh, the resurrection of believers, the coming resurrection. Now, notice in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 52, the Bible says this, In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So notice that. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, Paul is talking about his body. He says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. Do you know that one day at the resurrection, at the last trump, at the rapture, your body that's corruptible now will be transformed and it'll be changed into an incorruptible body? The Bible says, for this corruptible will put on incorruption. And this mortal, what does the word mortal mean? It means that you are a human or a person that can die. But notice it says, this mortal must put on immortality. See, one day this body will become an incorruptible body. This mortal body will become an immortal body that will never die, that will have no problems. Look at verse 54. So when this corruptible shall I put on incorruption, and this mortal shall I put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Do you see that? It's a quote from Isaiah. So what does Isaiah mean when he says death is swallowed up in victory? Here's what he means. He means that there's coming a day when there's something for you and I to look forward to, to the fact that one day we will get a body that is, today it's corruptible. Today it's susceptible to sin. Today it fails and it makes mistakes and it gets sick and, and it's unhealthy and it does things that we don't want to do. Today it's a mortal body, but one day this corruptible will put on incorruption and this mortal will put on immortality. And it'll be said the death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Now, I don't know about you, but I look forward to the day where I will one day, it's not just something I read about, and reading about it is good, and reading about it is great, and the Word of God is good, but I look forward to the day one day where my eyes will behold the Savior, where I'll actually see Jesus in the flesh. I mean, don't you ever wonder what, and I'll tell you this, He doesn't look like the pictures you have on your wall, all right? That's not what Jesus looks like, but don't you ever wonder what Jesus looks like? Wouldn't you just like to see him? Wouldn't we just like to, to, to behold him? Wouldn't you like to? But one day, the Bible says, Isaiah says, that the counsels which are faithful and true, those counsels, that word is flesh, and we'll see him. And one day, we will no longer be pilgrims on this earth. We'll no longer be a people that we're not a people. We'll no longer be a people without an identity. 
We'll no longer be people that are just kind of going through life and, and this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through and, and, and I'm not really of this world and I can't really connect with the people of this world. Even my friends or, or neighbors or co-workers or people I'm related to, I just don't really feel like I can connect with them because we're kind of headed in different directions because they're not believers. They don't believe in God. They're not, their counsels aren't faithful and true. But the Bible says that there's coming a day when a people which were not a people, a people that were pilgrims will be united and we will be able to look up to a physical God and say, thou art my God. The Bible says there's coming a day when there's going to be a celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and Jesus will gird himself and he will feed us and we will be able to fellowship with him and it's going to be a grand party where we'll celebrate with him the uniting of the bride of Christ and the Savior. The Bible says there's coming a day when your body that today aches and today has pain and today has problems and today you can't get it to do the things that you want it to do. One day that body, that corruptible body, will be turned into incorruption and that mortal body will be turned into immortality. And one day you will be able to not only behold Jesus, but you'll behold him and you'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's what the Bible says. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good deal. I look forward to that. I look forward to those benefits. But if you go back to Isaiah 25, I want you to just notice one phrase. As Isaiah is describing these things, because remember, in Isaiah 24, he just got done taking his time and describing all the awful things that are going to happen to the unbeliever. God is going to destroy the earth, and God is going to pour out his wrath, and they're going to be sad, and they're going to be upset. The Revelation tells us that they will seek death, and they won't find it. God is going to punish them, and God will make sure that every knee shall bow at, the, uh, at Jesus Christ. But the believer has a lot of good things in store. We'll see Jesus We'll be united in a community of, of other believers and we won't be pilgrims. We won't be a people that were scattered. We'll be the nation of God, the people of God. We'll celebrate those things with him and we'll have a new body and it'll be great. There's a lot of joy. But notice, even Isaiah cannot get away with only telling you all the positive things about the future coming of Christ. There's a negative thing that he mentions. Notice verse number eight. Isaiah 25 and verse eight. He will swallow up death and victory. Praise the Lord. This corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. God will give me a new body and, this, and that body won't sin and that body won't lie and that body won't hurt and that body won't, won't break down. That body won't get sick. That body will be perfect because I'll be like Christ. But then he says this, And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Say, well, what is that about? Well, that's also quoted in the New Testament. Let's look at it. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Look at verse number one. You say, well, Isaiah's describing all these happy things. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Who doesn't like a good party? Coming together with believers. I enjoy, well, I enjoy coming together with, with these believers. I'm talking about you. I enjoy every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. I look forward to coming to church and spending time with you. Just, just this body of believers here that we've gathered together in Sacramento. Could you imagine how it'll be one day when we're all gathered, every believer? You'll be able to talk to Abraham and David and Peter and James and John. You'll be able to fellowship with them. Jesus will be there and we'll be able to, to, to have this great party. Hey, I look forward to those things. I look forward to another body. Maybe, maybe my body in heaven, I don't know. Maybe it'll be a little taller. Who knows? That'd be great. You know, I, I don't know. But I, we all look forward to those things. But notice, Isaiah says, and you can't get away from it. He says, there is one negative thing I have to mention. You're going to be weeping. 
And God will have to wipe away those tears from all our faces. You say, what is that referring to? Are you there in Revelation 21? Look at verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. Notice all the good things. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Doesn't that sound good? For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Doesn't that sound good? And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Does that sound familiar? And God himself shall be with them and be their God. Does that sound familiar? All of that sounds good. But like Isaiah, he has to add the negative part, verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And they shall be no more, there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And you've got to ask this question. Okay, God, with all these great things, new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, marriage, supper of the Lamb, new body, death is swallowed away, with all these great things, why are you wiping away tears from our eyes? It's not unbelievers, it's believers. People say, oh, there'll be no tears in heaven. Well, there's going to be tears up to Revelation 21, 4, because he's going to wipe away all tears from their eyes. What's, what's going on? Here's what you've got to understand. Before you can get to Revelation 21, you have to get to Revelation 20. Before you can get to the event of Revelation 21, you have to go through the events of Revelation chapter 20. So let's look at Revelation tw- chapter 20. What are the events? Look at verse number 11. Some of you are saying, I knew you were going to go there. We always go there. See, I think you guys talk about this too much. We talk about it as much as the Bible talks about it. And maybe because God talks about it a lot, we ought to talk about it a lot. Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. There are two judgments the Bible refers to. The judgment of believers, which is called the judgment seat of Christ, where we will be judged for our works, not in order to decide whether you'll go to heaven, because you'll already be in heaven. You're already saved. It'll just be a judgment to decide what rewards you will get in heaven for the work you did for God on earth. But then there's another judgment, the great white throne. This is a judgment for unbelievers. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens flood away. So notice, when God sits at the great white throne, the Bible says the earth and the heavens flood away, and there was found no place for them. So heaven and earth at this point are not around. And in the next chapter, he's going to destroy heaven and earth altogether. But there's nowhere to go is what he's trying to say. Everyone, every person who has ever lived, saved or unsaved, will be at the great white throne because the Bible says that the earth and the heavens flood away. There was found no place for them. So if there's no place, there's nowhere for you to go. You will be there. I will be there. You will be there. Everyone who ever lived will be there. Notice verse 12. And I saw the dead. Now the dead is a reference to unbelievers. Remember Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he talks about the fact that if you believe on him, you'll never die. God never refers to a believer as dead. If if you've been reading the nine chapters of the day, you'll notice every time a believer dies, he says they're asleep. They even mocked him for saying, he says they're asleep. They're not dead, they're just asleep. Because you don't die in Christ. You you move on from here to heaven, but you don't die in Christ. But these are unbelievers. Notice verse 12. And I saw the dead, all all of them, small and great, rich, poor, kings, servants, it doesn't matter. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. That's the great white throne judgment. And the books were opened, 
And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. You say, well, why are they being judged according to their works? Look, unbelievers, that's what they ask for. They ask to be judged according to their works. Every, every unbeliever that says to you, I'm going to go to heaven because I live a good life. I'm going to go to heaven because I went to Sunday school. And I'm going to go to heaven because my grandpa was a Baptist preacher. Whatever, <clears throat> I'm going to go to heaven because I, you know, I've just, I'm not really done anything that bad. Every unbeliever, you know, thinks that they're going to get to heaven based on how good of a person they are. And God says, hey, you want to be judged by your works? I'd be more than happy to judge you by your works. The problem with being judged by your works is this, you'll be found wanting. The problem with being judged by your works is this, that no man can attain to the perfection of God. And they were judged by their works, every man according to their works. Look at verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now, I don't, I don't have time to go through and explain all of the theology behind this, but basically hell is in the center of the earth, and God is going to destroy the earth. So he's going to take hell, and he's going to put it into a place called the lake of fire. The hell and the lake of fire are two different places right now. They're basically the same thing, and they're even used interchangeably throughout Scripture. But for practical matters, hell is not in the lake of fire right now until after the great white throne. He will basically take hell and put it in the lake of fire. And he's going to take every unbeliever in hell, and he's going to resurrect them. Jesus talked about the resurrection of the dam. And he talked about the fact that these people are going to be united back with their bodies, and they will be judged at the great white throne, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Notice verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Here's what I want you to understand. When you get your new body, and when you see Jesus coming in a horse, and when we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and when we're all united, and we have all these beautiful things, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new, all these great things that are going to happen, in the midst of all that is something called the great white throne. Where we will basically, now you and I, if you're saved, will not be judged at the great white throne. We will only be observers. But basically at the great white throne, every single human, whoever lived, that's not saved, will be resurrected from hell and their bodies will be united. Notice, notice what he says. The sea, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to the word. He's going to take their bodies, resurrect them. He's going to take their soul out of hell, resurrect them. They will stand before God. They will be judged according to the word. The books will be open and the book of life and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here's what you got to understand. You and I will witness every single person, whoever lived, be cast into the lake of fire if they were not saved. That includes your friends who are not saved. That includes your family members who are not saved. That includes your cousin and your aunt and your neighbor and just any stranger that you walked by Bel Air when you were there this week or any stranger that you walked by at the store or every, every co-worker. Every single person who's not saved will be at this great white throne and will be cast into the lake of fire if they weren't saved. And when we see that, it will cause us to weep. Because we will watch people we know, people we love, people we had relationships with. We will watch them be cast into hell. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. 
And in the midst of all the joy, God will have to wipe away the tears from our eyes. And here's the point. And, and I know some of you guys think, Pastor, man, I just think you're a little too imbalanced in this thing. You're always talking about soul winning, soul winning, soul winning. It's all about soul winning, all about soul winning. Here's why it's all about soul winning, because that's what it's all about. <laughs> because the most important thing is whether a soul will spend eternity in hell. You understand that? And here's the thing. I preach sermons like this, and people come up to me afterwards, and they try to give me their excuse as to why they can't go soul winning. And listen to me. Your excuses are good. I agree with you. People come up to me and tell me why they can't go soul winning. And I'm like, man, you're right. You are too busy. You've got too much pressure. You've got too much going on. You are right. It is impossible for you to go soul winning. I agree with you. My heart goes out for you. But let me tell you something. On this day, your excuse will be garbage. Because we will watch people be cast into hell. And all of a sudden, that Saturday, you needed to rest, and I needed to do my gardening, and I just need a day off, and you don't understand, Pastor, and all those things. See, there are some of you that have been playing with this idea of, maybe I should learn how to give the gospel. Maybe I should witness to somebody. Maybe I should do something. Let me tell you something. There is coming a day when we will weep for every person we didn't share the gospel with. And all we're trying to do is get you prepared for this day. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 3, the Bible says this. But if our gospel be hid. See, do you understand this? If you're saved, you are saved. The only reason you're saved, and I think most of you in this room are saved. Do you understand that the only reason you're saved is because someone shared with you the gospel? You weren't born saved. You weren't born a Christian. You weren't, you're not a Christian because you were born in the United States of America. The only reason that you are saved is because someone took the time to care about you enough to open their mouth and give you the gospel. Do you understand that? That's the only, people you're, the only reason you're saved. And the Bible says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to the people that it affects the most, to them that are lost. You understand that? If you hide your gospel, it affects the people who need the message the most, those who are lost. You're saved because someone decided that with all the pressure and all the scheduling, all the things I've got going on, you understand, Pastor, I've got all these things going on. Somebody decided, even with all that aside, I'm going to give the gospel to you. And that person got saved because someone gave the gospel to them, because someone gave the gospel to them, because someone gave the gospel to them, all the way back to Jesus Christ. And the only way that the next generation will hear the gospel is if you decide, you know what, I am busy. You know what, I am scared. You know what, I am timid. You know what, I would rather do something else on a Saturday. I don't understand. Well, I don't understand. I can't give up my Saturday. You, think, you don't think the rest of us could figure out something? You don't think Pastor Mendes could figure out something fun to do on a Saturday morning? I, I go soul winning because it's the funnest thing I can think of on a Saturday morning. I can think of a lot of things I'd rather do on a Saturday morning, but the most important thing I could do on a Saturday morning is preach the gospel, is get someone saved. Because there's coming a day with all the joys, with the new heaven, the new earth, the marriage supper lamb, the, the, the bodies and the parties and all of that. There's coming one day when we will watch people be escorted into hell. People you know. People I know. And on that day, we'll say, I wish I would not have hid the gospel. So my challenge to you is this. Quit your excuses. We don't want to hear them. Quit your I'm so busy, you're not that busy. Quit your whatever you're going on with, cut it out. If you need to cut it out, if you need to quit your job so you can give something to the gospel, quit your job. Because it's the most important thing you do is share with the gospel with an individual. You may not think that right now, but I promise you, you will think it on the day of the great white throne. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.